I'm Elizabeth Ray. I'm Alistair Stevens. And Tom Cruise is the Vampire Lestat in Interview with the Vampire. so excited to finally be at this film because it's been like the one on my list that I've been the most excited to rewatch because it's just it was such like a vague fever dream in the back of my head I really haven't seen it in such a long time and I watched it when I was definitely too young to be watching it (laughs) Uh, so I loved going back to it I'm wondering overall if you enjoyed the movie I did overall yeah yeah. I mean it's such an interesting artifact right because it is definitely an artifact yeah it is such a weird outlier in Tom Cruise's filmography Mm. specifically it's such a weird outlier in like 90s genre fiction I feel like yeah and it's an interesting reorientation of what we're doing with vampires in the pop culture at that point. It's it's such an interesting field of study. You know, you can just track the development of vampires in literature and then in film through really like the 18th century onward. They never really go away. They never really stop yeah. being a part of our popular culture because they can be turned to any purpose. You can interrogate the idea of the vampire from so many different angles, from so many different perspectives. And this is really, I mean, between Anne Rice publishing this novel in 1976 and the movie coming out in 1994, we are really moving the notion of the vampire from the monstrous into the sexy. I was going to say, do we put vampires to other purposes or are they just sex machines? Because I feel like it's always about sex. Dracula's not about sex? Dracula's not primarily about sex. Dracula is Mm. about modernity dracula is about the means and methods of the modern world suppressing the ancient superstitions of the old world right it is about this aristocratic creature that comes from the depths of the old world in central europe to the modern thriving metropolis of london and is crushed by the scientific method that is how they take him out at the wow. end is through like rationality and industry and and hard work right the the power the gears the mechanisms of empire mm-hmm. it's really about the modern world crushing the old and not having to be afraid of the old it's about cultural dominance in that way and of course vampires arise from folklore into literature in the 18th century in you know the era of revolution they are coming Mm. up as symbols of the privileged aristocratic class that is literally bleeding the working class dry Ah, sure they're immediately politically loaded so yes vampires are always about sex they're always about desire they're about Mm. carnality they're about you know the animalistic sometimes but also the extremely refined sometimes that Mm -hmm. pendulum swings back and forth too but they're also innately political in a way that i think doesn't really drop out of the vampire story until anne rice i think that she is the one you know salem's lot by stephen king is the year before interview with the vampire and it is a really standard, a great book. I love Salem's Lot. I've but never it is read a it. I don't. Is really that... standard monster book. It is okay. just vampires take over a small town, and huh. that's all that it is. It doesn't have any of this perspective on the gothic noble tragedy of the vampire. Anne Rice reinserts that into the story from you know nineteenth century roots, and then makes it sexy. <laughs> and that is just <laughs> really what happens. There. And of course, it's all overlaid with all of this sense, this this perception of queer culture which is not intended by rice when she writes the book but is absolutely present in the text yeah i mean 76 is before really you know queer culture is is on anyone's mind it's Mm. not really until the hiv aids crisis that the book starts to be recontextualized as an exploration of sexiness and desire 
as, you know, a curse, as something mm-hmm. that will ultimately isolate you, that will ultimately remove you, that will ultimately end always in tragedy. That's the arc of vampire literature in the 20th century. We basically start the century with Bram Stoker, with Dracula. Mm-hmm. Then we do a bunch of, you know, gothic revival stuff. Then vampires are co-opted by the pulps. They're kind of pulled out into right. every possible genre, right? We get a lot of weird fantasy vampires and weird science fiction vampires, including Richard Matheson's book, I Am Legend, which is published in, I think, 1954. Mm. That's a really powerful kind of reimagined what if vampirism was just a kind of virus that can take over the entire human race? What does that say politically? How does that change our perspective? Then we get the weird ABC long-running gothic soap opera, Dark Shadows. Oh, I don't Do know, you know this. this. This is the thing. This is the property that was remade by Tim Burton in like 2012. When, when did it run initially? Uh, it started in 1966. Oh, my God. Okay. ran for, I think, seven or eight years, uh, basically daily. And it was a strange, like... Yeah, gothic supernatural soap opera. But one of the characters that's introduced that is like the breakout success is Barnabas Collins, who is the first kind of tragic vampire. He is the first vampire who emerges into the modern world and realizes that the world has left him behind Mm. and kind of has to struggle with that and is still monstrous and is still like evil and Machiavellian and all that, you know, good, good stuff. But has an air of tragedy about him. And that obviously directly informs what Anne Rice does. And what Anne Rice does is invent... Angel and Spike and the Vampire Diaries and True Blood and Underworld (laughs) and Twilight and all our common, popular, modern notions of sexy vampires. Wow. Well, thank you, Anne Rice, I guess. (laughs) And I'd love to take just a minute to talk about Anne Rice and to give a little of the biography because it is such a wild story. It's such a gothic story. And the influences of her real life can absolutely be felt in the pages of this book. And then, of course in the movie version too. Anne Rice is born in New Orleans, Louisiana in 1941. Mm -hmm. She is the second of four daughters born to Irish Catholics. And though we ought to be wary of interpreting every, you know, creative act and artistic impulse through the autobiographical lens, you can see a lot of her work in her upbringing. Her mother dies when she is 15 years old from complications caused by alcoholism. She and her sisters are then placed in a very strict all-girl Catholic high school Uh run by the Sisters of St. Joseph, which Rice would later describe as, quote, something out of Jane Eyre, a dilapidated, awful, medieval type of place. Wow. This also really hurts her relationship with her father for a long time. Mm. The following year, her father remarries, and the family relocates from New Orleans to Richardson, Texas. Rice graduates high school in 1959, having already met the man who would later be her husband. She completes a year at the Texas Women's University in Denton, then transfers to North Texas State, but is forced to drop out because she doesn't have any money and she can't find work. The struggle of Anne Rice trying to get her education is ongoing and really, I mean, frankly, noble. Like, it's awful and terrible and tragic, but also inspiring. Yeah, felt She goes to San Francisco. She ends up taking night classes at the University of San Francisco, which is at that point an all-male Jesuit school that only allows women to study in the evenings, but she perseveres. She's married at the age of 20, and her family moves full-time to San Francisco so that she can continue her studies. They have a daughter in 1966. In 1968, Rice completes a short story about a journalist interviewing a vampire. Okay. In 1970, though... Rice's daughter, then aged four, is diagnosed with leukemia. Oh, my God. She dies in 1972 at the age of six. Deep in her grief, Rice takes up the short story that she had previously written and expands it into a novel. It takes her five weeks to write the manuscript. She researches all day and then writes all night. That's three and a half thousand words per night. 
which is a phenomenal amount of work. She tries to sell the novel, but develops obsessive compulsive disorder that takes her more than a year to conquer. It isn't until 1974, when she goes to a writer's conference in Northern California, that she meets her future literary agent, Phyllis Seidel, who would eventually sell the hardback rights to Knopf for $12,000, which was six times the average advance at the time. Wow. The book was first published in 1976 and is met with very mixed critical reviews. And honestly, that kind of mixed critical response has continued in the decades since the book was originally published. But that does nothing to stop the book from being a huge hit. It sells millions and millions of copies. It spawns an entire series. It secures her position in the vanguard of this like new wave of erotic gothic mm. fiction. We don't get most urban fantasy, and we don't get paranormal romance without Anne Rice. You can trace it all back to her. The movie rights are also sold in 1976, and if you were pleased with her advance, let me tell you that Paramount paid her $150,000, which is a scotch more than $800,000 in today's money for the option. Good for her. They thought that it would be a perfect vehicle for their most relevant and sexy up-and-coming movie star, John Travolta. <laughs> I can see it. <laughs> However, <laughs> we were in one of the recurring gluts of vampire movies. There were like four vampire movies on the slate for the next 18 months, and Paramount shelved the project. Wow. And then it stayed on the shelf. We'll talk a little more about its development in just a moment. As I mentioned earlier, through the 1980s, the critical response moves a little bit, and it is hailed as a foundational gay text or or queer-adjacent text. Mm -hmm. It is, of course, particularly relevant to gay men in San Francisco during the 1980s and the rise of the AIDS epidemic. Overall, we should note that Anne Rice published 40 novels, sold more than 150 million books, which puts her in the company of Michael Crichton. She is absolutely a a novelist at that level and secures her place in the top 25 most popular American novelists of all time. Amazing. Not least of all, because Interview with the Vampire spawned 12 novels, 12 sequels published between 1985 and 2018. Anne Rice sadly died on December the 11th, 2021 at the age of 80. Wow. An absolutely pivotal figure in modern American genre fiction who is grossly overlooked. Wow. Her story is so complicated, right, that it it is hard to get the necessary traction. (laughs) She reconverts to Catholicism in the late 1990s, I believe, and then publishes two volumes that are fictionalized versions of the life of Christ and is very staunchly... Catholic, very staunchly Christian through that period. Though, I will say in her defense that she never gives up her support for the queer community. What's your personal history with Anne Rice? Oh, very little. I never read any of the books, although now I can't wait to. I'm really looking forward to it, actually. I'm wondering if they'd be a good hot New Orleans summer kind of read or if I should wait for spooky season. So maybe our listeners can tell me a little bit about what they think. I really do like my readings to kind of match the seasons. I know it's a silly thing to say, but... I, I would be interested to hear if it's I like would recommend spooky season. hot summer or spooky season. Yeah. Spooky season. That's what I would I'm maybe yeah. I would maybe hold them off until the fall, but yeah. That's what I that's what I'm thinking. So I might I might push that down uh, my to be read pile, but it's definitely there now, and it wasn't before. Um, I am typically not someone who is taken with vampire lore. I've also never read any of the Twilight books. I tried to read the Deborah Harkness series, and sure. I just couldn't with that. And I think that there's there are certain tropes that often fall into vampire stories that really push me out women who get into these like bad boy relationships where the guy is just emotionally withholding 
and dangerous to her, I suppose. Yeah. There there are certain spots where that works for me when the woman is like very self-possessed and strong. But that's usually not what we're doing. Usually the woman is very like, um, I'm thinking of Bella and I've already forgotten the name of the protagonist in the Deborah Harkness, but who are just like walking into walls all the time and need this vampire person to take care of them. You could see where that could be an echo from the Anne Rice with Claudia being so young, but Claudia is so self-possessed. Right. Like she does not have any of that uncomfortably feminine toothlessness to put it into a yeah. vampire story you know yeah like a like a superficial vulnerability right? yes uh, absolutely. an exposed vulnerability yeah. yeah it is interesting i didn't even mention this but of course this is the other big pivot that Anne rice does is to center the experience of the vampire on the page previously vampire novels have been about victims of vampires yes. and whatever kind of grandeur and kind of gothic romance is associated with the vampire is seen from a distance it's seen mm. from that remove but here, of course, we're very much in Louis' POV, and we experience all yeah. of that, you know, weight and ennui, I guess, as we move forward. That that is a that, a very original and, yeah. and enduring move. Yeah, it's almost like reading Jane Eyre from the point of view of Rochester. Exactly. Yeah, and I will yeah. say that that is one of the instances where it does work for me. Rochester and Jane work for me because Jane is so self possessed. Yeah, she is in charge of that relationship the entire time she has the upper hand. And it's really beautifully written when you get to see, because you're so far in her POV, the ways in which she is. But there's no modern vampire fiction that's working for you. You were never a Vampire Diaries or a True Blood no. or a... Yeah. To be fair, I haven't watched any of those. So they they might be something that I was interested in if I started watching them. But just on the page when I see, oh, it's a vampire story, I'm usually out. Yeah. Although mm -hmm. I have been hearing great things about this uh, TV series of Interview with a Vampire that now, yes. again, I'm looking forward to watching. So, Which I believe is an eight-part series produced through AMC awesome. that was released last year. And I love yeah, everything about very that. Very good notices, yeah. Cool. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Is it surprising, having watched this film and realizing that this film was a commercial success, that there weren't any sequels? I mean, we should note there was a sequel. There was, Queen right? of the, the Damned Aaliyah. starring yeah. Aaliyah was technically a sequel, but it's a, a partial adaptation of the third book with elements of the second book folded in. Mm. There's no recurring cast. It's not even really marketed as the sequel to this film. Does it surprise you that this didn't have more commercial traction through the 90s? It does, especially because like anytime, you know, just chatting at work about, you know, the filmography and, and where we are in the podcast, everyone is just like, oh, my God, interview with the vampires. So cool, <laughs> you know? So it's left such a footprint that it is surprising. But at the same time, watching the movie, I find it surprising that the film got made at all, let alone the way in right? which it got made. I was expecting queer subtext, but it is text explicit is on the page in a way. Absolutely text. I was not expecting for 94. Yeah. It is a much more thorough and ambitious and self-possessed film than I think anyone had a right to yeah. expect in 1994. Really quite mature, too. Yeah. Like, for all of its silliness sometimes, it was deep, you yeah. know? I was yeah. I was surprised by it. Me too. And I think we can lay that absolutely at the feet of director Neil Jordan. We'll talk a little more about him, but first, I have to do the trailer game. Oh. <laughs> here we are, 15 minutes into this podcast. That seems impossible. Yes. I can't wait. <laughs> I almost forgot it, but it would be terrible uh -oh. if I didn't it get would to be terrible. this particular yes. film. So, so many emails. Uh -huh. Let's give this a try, shall we? Please. Investigative reporter Daniel Malloy is about to have the story of a lifetime. 
if only he can survive the night. Listen in as he is told the tale of the weight of centuries, of eternal loneliness, of corruption and dark desires, all from the point of view of a guy who actually owned actual slaves back in Spanish Louisiana. <laughs> Brad Pitt, Tom Cruise, Kirsten Dunst, and gallons of cherry red corn syrup. Interview with the Vampire. So as I said, Paramount buys the rights for this book in 1976, but because there are these other vampire movies on the horizon, they decide to shelve it. The rights bounce around Hollywood through the 1980s, first being sold to Lorimar and then to Warner Brothers, who approached Neil Jordan in 1992 after the success of his movie The Crying Game, and mindful, of course, of the recent success of Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula. Mm -hmm. Neil Jordan credits that film with this film being made like it's a direct one-to-one correlation if dracula had not been such a success they would never have gotten the very large budget that they get from warner it brothers it looks like a big budget 60 million dollars in 1994 wow a that's lot of so money. much it looks beautiful it really does it is almost all there on the screen for yeah. sure Neil Jordan comes in with two stipulations there are two conditions that he has to undertake the work on this film the first is that he gets to write his own script Anne Ooh. Rice has already adapted the movie, but Anne Rice's prose, you've never read her, right? So no. you never, yeah. Very flowery. Very, like, I all like of the prose, internal monologue stuff <laughs> in the film is basically taken from her prose. Uh, but that's not how a film no, works. No, <laughs> no, yeah. So Neil Jordan throws that script out and basically does a complete rewrite, though Anne Rice still receives credit. He didn't uh, mm. contest that credit with the WGA. The other condition that he had was Final Cut. He gets to make the film Ooh. exactly how he wants it. I'm astonished at how few directors get Final Cut. You really have to be in a very special position in order to to leverage that yeah. kind of power in Hollywood. And wow. less so now than ever, I think. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I don't think it, it almost never happens now, to my understanding. So the gargantuan budget of $60 million eventually inflates all the way to $70 million, which is just, yeah, a huge amount at the time. Shooting takes place in New Orleans and in London with some exterior work in Paris and San Francisco. Casting is a hugely controversial process. Anne Rice wants Julian Sands to play the role of Lestat, which is I can, a bad idea. It's a bad <laughs> it's idea, a but I can totally idea. see it. I get the Julian Sands thing. I don't think that he was a very wonderful actor, but he certainly had a presence and a look. No, certainly. A pre I have no yeah. ill will toward Julian Sands at all. Mm -hmm. But yeah, an odd fit for particularly a film that is this high profile. Yeah. I think. The studio, though, is considering simultaneously... Both Daniel Day-Lewis and sure. Johnny Depp. Two obviously very similar actors, very similar uh, methods, very similar, like, like really interchangeable in most this things, This is Lestat? For Lestat, yes. I can see it. Either way. No, I think either one, again, could yeah. have worked. Tom Cruise, it turns out, was a very unpopular choice. Anne Rice, in public, criticizes that selection. Wow. She eventually, even through the production, while the production is happening, she is giving interviews saying, no, you know, I begged the studio to switch Cruz and Pitt. I understand they've signed contracts. I understand you can't let them go. But they should be playing each other's parts. They'd be much better that way. Which huh. is an interesting thought. It is an interesting thought, actually. I'm going to kind of plant my flag in the ground here and say, I, I like this film. Yeah. I don't think that either Cruz or Pitt is particularly good in it. And I don't think Ooh. they're particularly matched to the material. I think that Cruz has moments yeah. where he really gets to give a performance that we have not seen from him before yes. and basically will not see from him again. I really like 
basically all of his manic stuff and anytime yeah. he like throws a temper tantrum i think is fantastic really good stuff uh again not having read it i can imagine that this is not the lestat that's on the page in the novel he does just always feel a little bit modern it's just yes. strange and i i also feel as though he should have some kind of accent and he doesn't like some kind of i mean of... he is adopting a kind of yeah faux historical a little back in the little... olden days everyone kind of spoke with a kind of english inflection he's doing Maybe something there i like it anytime he's um speaking the italian at the piano oh extremely good i think yes. it's very good very yeah. naturalistic actually yeah yeah, yeah. no so I... I some i sometimes liked him he sometimes worked for me but it took a while i was fully a third of the way into his performance before i started seeing things that i really liked what do you think of Pitt? I like Pitt. And now, and this is hard because I'm a 90s girl and he's just so beautiful and he's Brad Pitt. Like, what am I not going to no, like? sure. So it's hard a little bit to divorce myself from that and to, and to divorce myself from thinking about Brad Pitt in Interview with the Vampire, which is like just, he's the guy. I, I do think that he works. He has such a sorrow in his eyes. Interesting. That to me communicates Louis. And, and a sadness, I think, and also just that arresting beauty. So I, I think that he does work. He's also a bit modern, but I, I can forgive it. Eh, I don't know. He's not always modern because he did River Runs Through It and Legends of the Fall. And I liked him in both of those, too. Yeah. I'm going to say long-haired, sorrow-eyed, period drama <laughs> Brad Pitt works for me as a rule. I can see that. I, I think sorrow, sadness, like depth, depth. I think is exactly mm. what this character needs. I don't really get it from him in most of his performance here, I think. It, okay. We keep trying to put him in roles like that through the 90s, mm -hmm. where we're kind of alternating with his much bigger, much more manic energy, you know? But, we're, you know, we're basically going to revisit this kind of performance in Meet Joe Black, a movie which you and I, I think, like Love. more than most people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's still a little... I don't know. I, I'm not seeing depth, I think, is what it is. I just see, like, mm. it's a very superficial sadness, but he also looks like he'd cheer right up if you gave him a cookie, you know? <laughs> mean. Okay. No? <laughs> I don't intend that to be mean. I just don't get the weight of ages. I don't get, huh. like, you know, eternal haunted sorrow from this, you know, from a gothic figure. I don't think he reads as, as he gothic. He doesn't read as gothic. That is fair. Yeah. yeah. We should say, though, that after the film comes out, Anne Rice recants, retracts all of her criticism That's and good. praises both actors significantly. Uh, River Phoenix was originally Ooh. cast as Malloy, but he unfortunately dies four weeks before principal oh photography God. is due to start. So Christian Slater is a last-minute replacement and donates all of his salary, his $250,000 salary, to the two charities supported by River Phoenix. Oh, that's beautiful. Which is a real class move. Yeah. yeah. And he's great in this, I think. I, I think know that so he's too. just doing the Christian Slater thing, but it works for me, especially because it the the modern sequences in the film are the standouts of like Oh, this really is silly, though, isn't it? Uh, to, to me, anyway. Like, oh, coffins are unfortunately necessary. I'm like, are, are, are they? Why? Yes. <laughs> Why are coffins necessary? We're still <laughs> evolving. Well, and that's part of why I think vampire fiction stays so current and so relevant for, you know, 150 years yeah. at this point in, in the English language, that we can continually adjust and reorient, you know, mm. the tropes and the trappings. Like... Are these going to be a holy water, can't cross a river, have yeah. to stop and pick up rice vampires? <laughs> or are these going to be, no, none of that. None of that at all, actually. Yeah. I do. He's fond of looking at crucifixes, which is a nice detail. Perhaps. Yeah. Okay. Why? If you're from New Orleans, I guess you would be, right? Maybe, yeah. Unless you feel like you're yeah. at home. I don't know.
Christina Ricci, Julia Stiles, Natalie Portman, and Evan Rachel Wood all auditioned for Claudia. But Kirsten Dunst was the first girl to audition. And after they auditioned, what they they say very specifically, we auditioned a thousand other girls and went back to Kirsten Dunst. This is an incredible performance. I was just gobsmacked. And of course, everyone talks about her performance. And I also remember that she was just really arresting. But I mean, at the time I watched this movie, I was roughly her age. So we must be of a similar age within five years of each other, I think. She is two years older than you. Yeah. 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 Okay. So watching it, I couldn't really understand what incredible acting she was doing. Watching it now... I'm just blown away. Like it's, it's so much to be called upon to do. Yeah. And she does it with what looks like such ease and naturalism. How she goes from a child throwing a temper tantrum to a self-possessed young woman of society in that just tiny fairy frame. It's astonishing. It is absolutely incredible. We talked a little about Anna Paquin in last week's yeah. episode when we discussed The Firm. And of course, her performance, her Oscar-winning performance right. is heralded as one of the greatest performances ever given by a child actor. And I would absolutely put this performance by Kirsten Dunst oh, right there next to it. I think it is fantastic. I think Dunst has maybe never been better, honestly, no, which is I, maybe a terrible maybe thing to a say terrible about thing an actor. To say, but however, yeah. But honestly. And correct me if I'm wrong, this was basically snubbed by the Oscars? Uh, yes, it got two Oscar nominations, one for art direction, which is kind of a catch-all technical yeah. category. It like, is okay with your pretty movie. wild pretty. that this film was not nominated. It is wild, frankly, that this film did not win for costuming. I completely agree. Because it the is an incredible accomplishment. Succulent, yes. But if art direction is kind of this catch-all for, you know, costumes and set yeah. design and props and, you know, kind of you kind of fold special effects like in, yeah. in terms of their visual coherence with the film as a whole, you can kind of fold visual effects into that category too. So it is nominated. It does not win. It is also nominated for Best Original Score. Weird. Which I do think is weird because yeah. with a couple of exceptions, really that opening piece I think is so beautiful. Stunning. And then every Everything else is pretty bad. And then we wind up with the Guns N' Roses cover. And I know that this this isn't original (laughs) score. This is just, you know, the the musical landscape of the film. To end with that genuinely, and I will say, I have been in my past a Guns N' Roses fan. I know you have. They were really reaching the end of their relevance in 1994 Mm. anyway. And to have them covering Sympathy for the Devil by the Rolling Stones is a calamitous decision. (laughs) It is. The end of this film is saved only by that incredible helicopter shot of the Golden Gorgeous. Gate Bridge. Fact. Which is just, we bookend this movie with the two. The sun starts to rise. I'm like, Lestat, are you okay? You're in a convertible, <laughs> buddy. You're in that insane cherry red 56 beautiful, Mustang. Beautiful. Back to cars again. I'll tell you yes. what, Malloy is making some our first decent hot money. car was going to be interview with a vampire. <laughs> Who would have thought that? Not I. Let's give a little background on each of our actors here then, because we won't really have the chance to talk about many of these people again. We can talk about Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt, born in Shawnee, Oklahoma, just down the road from us here in 1963. He is only a year younger than Tom Cruise, but it takes him so much longer to break that it feels as though he's in a different generation. Tom Cruise, definitive of the 1980s. Brad Pitt, definitive of the 1990s, Mm -hmm. despite the fact that there's only a one-year difference. His first on-screen role is in 21 Jump Street in 1987, but he doesn't really break until Ridley Scott's Thelma and Louise in 1991, mm-hmm. in which he is maybe the hottest person in history, firstly, Definitely. but yeah. also brilliant. Mm-hmm. What a performance. God, he's so terrific. I really enjoy Brad Pitt. 
I think he's just such a dynamic actor. I think so too. Yeah. And quite beautiful to look at. <laughs> really, really easy on the eye for sure. <laughs> he does Cool World and A River Runs Through It in 1992, mm-hmm. California and True Romance in 1993. Whoa. And he'll appear in The Favor and Legends of the Fall in 1994, the same year as Interview with a Vampire. This is wow. a miracle run from mm-hmm. this young actor. He'll go on, of course, to, oh, in fact, 1995, the very next year, he will also appear in David Fincher's Seven and Terry Gilliam's Twelve Monkeys, Whoa. which will set the tone for the rest of his career. Such Absolutely. different performances from what preceded them. Wow. Exactly right. Uh-huh. And from there, it's Meet Joe Black and it's Fight Club mm. and it's the Oceans movies and it's Benjamin Button and it's Moneyball. And then he gets this late era resurgence yep. with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Babylon. He's kind of maneuvered himself into being a George Clooney, you know, golden age of Hollywood type actor now, which I don't think anyone would have expected, particularly from his edgier work in the 90s. Yeah. He's just a phenomenal actor. Mm Mm-hmm. What was your first Brad Pitt film? Do you remember? Were you a big, like, a river runs through it? Like, <laughs> I mean, uh, you were eight years old and just falling really. in love I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> a river runs through it was a little bit boring for me when I was a kid, although I went back to it later. Legends of the Fall, I think, was probably a close one. And I think Seven would have been the other one that was just like, really, whoa, what a powerhouse. Yeah, yeah. The one I have like the most enduring memory for would be Meet Joe Black. I saw that in theaters. I want to say I was on a date, although I'm not entirely certain. But I saw it in the theater and I loved the soundtrack. I was amazed by his performance when he is first meeting Claire. What's her name? Claire Forlani. Claire Forlani. The very beautiful Claire Forlani. Yes. 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 When he's first meeting Claire Forlani in that diner, I thought he was just so alive and charming and charismatic and magnetic. I was just so drawn in by him. And then he gives such a cold, distant performance for the rest of the film, Yeah, which has its highs and lows. Like I don't think the, the entire film holds together very much, but I will always remember Claire Forlani's dress and clavicle <laughs> yes uh, she is a woman with bone structure for days for days yeah. yes could cut glass absolutely and just that being that that movie i think being up there with like the ideal of glamour and beauty like in a modern sense for the time anyway alongside titanic which was the other one sure. that was like really yeah, arresting to me and it's just like drama and romance yeah it's interesting to think of the different modes of Brad Pitt because mm-hmm. I feel as though few actors have managed to maintain those different tonalities through the length of their career the way that Pitt has, yeah. right? Where he can absolutely, because he has the California true romance, seven to a degree, seven's a more mediated performance, but certainly 12 Monkeys, Fight Club. Yeah. These are insane performances. They are so big. They are so crackling with yeah. energy the and whole Snatch time. Also? Snatch yeah. also similarly, yes. And to do that, alternating basically with this performance, with A River Runs Through It, with, mm-hmm. you know, these much quieter, much more soulful. I will say I prefer him up. I prefer big Brad sure. Pitt energy. I don't love as much meet joe black i think is the exception mm-hmm. i don't love his energy here i think as yeah, much as you, you do i don't love his energy in uh benjamin button i think is really quite uh, poor i don't honestly. know if that's his fault but yeah it's, it's really not yeah but he doesn't serve that film mm-hmm. maybe as well but yeah overall though i think a very 
enjoyable actor and yeah. an actor I'm thrilled to have continuing now into his 60s as he yeah steps up into this older statesman role and yeah, kind of takes so some cool. of those those positions it's great We've already talked about Christian Slater over on our bonus episodes on the Patreon feed when we covered Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Of course, if you'd like to hear us talk about Christian Slater, mm-hmm. you can go over and listen to those, patreon.com slash next word. Do you want to encapsulate your feelings about Christian Slater for our audience just in like one sentence? What do you think of him in this period, particularly in 1994? Safe hands to do what he does. Sure. Okay. You know, yeah. like not going to drop the ball on you, not going to do anything crazy, not going to surprise you, but... Yeah, he'll come in and he'll do his thing and he'll be earnest and compelling. I think he's maybe still at this point, and this I think is maybe where the age difference between us plays a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think he is still, even in 1994, extremely cool. I think he ah, is still interesting. Like, yeah. iconic of, of young and, and youthful coolness. With great hair. Yeah, yeah. fantastic hair. Absolutely. <laughs> and yeah, really, it's got, the costuming here too is so good. The set. Yeah. The, the set design for the space where they're doing the studio where it like narrows down into the, what, the apex of yeah. this triangle. It's so sexy. Gorgeous. Very cool. But also still manages to look anonymous. Yeah, it is otherworldly almost, right? Yeah. It is disconnected in a really, really interesting way. Is it, it supposed feels, to be a hotel room? It is unclear exactly what it's supposed to be. Yeah. In the book, it is just in a small house. Mm. But this relocation, I think it comes from a desire to make it more anonymous. Like yeah. it, this is a space that no one owns yeah. in quite that way. So we're we're dislocated in, a, in an cool. interesting way. Neil Jordan is doing so much in this film. I'm definitely going to watch this film again within the next month. And that yeah. is the thing that I say about all too few of the Tom Cruise movies that we've watched so far. I need to return to this one and really think about what it is doing because mm. there's a lot happening here. Let's talk a little about Kirsten Dunst. She is 11 when she shoots this film. God, that's 12 incredible. when it comes out. She already has five, or I guess this is her fifth movie credit, which is wild. The same year as Interview with the Vampire, she is in the Winona Ryder, Claire Danes, Susan Sarandon, Little Women. An all-time favorite, an extraordinary performance again by what Kirsten Dunst. cast. And what a cast. Oh, my God. Like, I love Greta Gerwig, <laughs> but this is my Little Women. Sure. I, I think that was a pretty popular response when that film came mm. out, to be honest. Yeah. Fantastic. The following year, she will appear in Jumanji, in which she is also great, at least in my memory. I haven't seen Jumanji since it came out. She will voice Anastasia in 1997, and she Love will voice Kiki of oh, yeah. The Delivery Service in my favorite Studio Ghibli film in 1998. I haven't seen that one yet. That's interesting. I might have to. Also in 1998, she appears in one of our most beloved films, not ours personally, but ours collectively as a podcast. Uh huh. She will appear in the Joe Dante epic. Small Soldiers. <laughs> Just to bring it back to our very earliest episodes of this podcast. 1999 is Drop Dead Gorgeous and the Virgin Suicides. Bring it on, of course, in 2000. There's a movie about some kind of arachnid gentleman in 2002. She's in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind in 2004. She's famously in Elizabethtown. She is oh, yeah. the originating Manic Pixie Dream Girl her. in Elizabethtown in 2005. And Sofia Coppola's divisive Marie Antoinette, I think, in 2006. I love it. Stand by it. She is also the best thing, but me no buts, about Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog. I really, really wanted to love The Power of the Dog. I really wanted to. I didn't. I didn't either. I, felt I did let broadly down. love her. <laughs> oh yeah, I think I think Kirsten Dunst is fantastic in that film. I think her male leads, and and honestly, the overall structure of the story, right, the intent, the the orientation of the story, mm-hmm. is 
not quite what I want it to be. I, I think everyone was waiting for Campion to knock it out of the yeah. park. And instead, I, well, she did she a really did. great job. She won all these awards for it. Sure. She was nominated for all this stuff. I, I felt personally let down as a queer person. I was like, are we really going to do this? We're burying our gaze now. We're yeah. doing this now. In 2021. Yeah. Yeah. A tough a time. Shame. For mm -hmm. sure. Also in 2021, I guess Kiki Dunst married Jesse Plemons. <laughs> you... And I don't know that I'm on board with that, I honestly. I think it's great. They're very sweet and cute together. They're charming on red carpets. They're clearly very in love and affectionate to one another. They seem very supportive of each other. Good for them. I'm just out on my celebrity gossip. That's what I just don't have it at my fingertips. So it came as a Fair surprise enough. to me. And yeah. I thought, him? Really? I mean, not that I'm opposed to exceptional sure. women <laughs> hooking up with unexceptional men. Thank God for that, frankly. <laughs> Let's talk a little about Antonio Banderas, who shows Ooh. up late in this movie with, yeah. I think, a great performance. Mm -hmm. Banderas is born in 1960 and establishes a really solid, really fantastic and interesting and complex reputation in Spain as both a stage actor and a regular partner to Pedro Almodovar. He's brought to the U.S. by Madonna in 1991. And yes, that is as weird as it sounds. Like okay. She imports him. Into the United States in 1991. He doesn't speak English at that point. He is yeah. taking little acting jobs and is learning his lines phonetically. But he doesn't break until he plays Tom Hanks' boyfriend in Philadelphia in 1992, in oh. which he is just lovely and soulful and ah, a That's really, a really beautiful, beautiful I performance. It I just have to. This is his second major role in Hollywood, but he'll go on from here to be in Desperado and in Evita and in The Mask of mm -hmm. Zorro, which is a mm -hmm. very bad, extremely fun movie. <laughs> he'll be in the first three Spy Kids movies. He does six Shrek or Shrek-adjacent sure, voice roles boots, as yeah. Puss in Boots. He is in <laughs> last year's Indiana Jones sequel and will apparently be in the upcoming Paddington sequel, Ooh. in which I can only presume he's going to be playing the villain. He'll be following on from sure. Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant. That seems like excellent casting. Yeah. Quite yeah, frankly, I like it. I love that. By the way, sorry, guys, mm -hmm. this is just a conversation between me and Elizabeth for the next 30 <laughs> seconds or so, I guess. Did you read that Emily Mortimer is replacing Sally Hawkins as <gasps> Mrs. Brown in the new Paddington? No, why? I have no idea. Hopefully it's because... I can only assume that Sally Hawkins is doing something much more interesting. She's got better work. That's, right? the, that's the only reason I can and imagine. I she's really this, extraordinary and overlooked. I say this as someone who likes Emily Mortimer and has defended Emily Mortimer sure. in this house to you on more than one occasion, but... <laughs> Fact. I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> come on. Oh, yeah. My, my not... interest level in that film did just drop by like 20%. Mm. It's oh. sad to say. Anyway, back to the show. Uh, <laughs> the last person that we should really talk about is Tendiway Newton, who is in this yes. movie for such a brief period. And we will have the opportunity to talk oh. about her again when we get to Mission Impossible 2. In which That's right. She is lovely in a bad film, but you yes. know we'll get to all of that. Newton is born in London in 1972 to an English father and a Zimbabwean mother. She spends the first three years of her life in Zambia, then returns to England to settle in the picture postcard town of Penzance in Cornwall. You know, where the pirates come from. I was going to say. Okay. <laughs> she attends a performing arts high school, then goes to Cambridge University, where she earns a degree in social anthropology in 1995. She graduates in 1995, which wow. means that she is studying yeah, while, while she shoots this, this film. film. Oh, my God. Yes. We should note also that Tandiwe Newton used to be credited as Tandy Newton because her name was misspelled in the credits of her first film and her agent advised her to just let it go. Uh, so terrible she advice. adopted that misspelling as a screen name of sorts. 
She changed her name back to her real name in 2021 professionally and is seeking to have credits changed in her previous work where that is possible, as she absolutely should. She'll go on from this movie to appear in the Merchant Ivory film Jefferson in Paris in 1995. I don't know that one. That's really I was going to say, I like the Merchant Ivory stuff. That's really lovely. I don't love it, but I like it. I mean, politically... Very dubious. Mm, Jefferson. Well, but, I mean, you know. <laughs> more politically dubious than her role here in Interview with the Vampire. Uh, again, yeah. We'll get to that, I okay. guess. Sure. Uh, she's in Beloved in 1998. She is, as I said, the best thing about Mission Impossible 2 in 2000. Yes. She's in Crash, the racism one, not the horny car one. Uh, just to differentiate yes. from Polly yes. Hunter in uh-huh. last week's show in 2004. She's maybe the best thing in Solo, a Star Wars story in 2018. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And she is fantastic in the HBO series Westworld where she is one of the leads. Oh, yeah. I never watched Westworld. Uh, Just an astonishing actor and I'm constantly, always, just looking forward to the next thing from her. I think she's Mm -hmm. just great. Let's get back to the story of the movie. Principal Photography begins in November of 1993 and runs to March 15th, 1994, with the latter half taking place on the famous, the legendary 007 soundstage at Pinewood in London, the same stage that had burned down when Ridley Scott shot Legend. (laughs) In early September, a test screening is shown to an audience in Los Angeles because producer David Geffen is concerned about the amount of blood and about the structure, but really, Uh really about the gore. The final cut of the movie, though, is 20 minutes shorter than that test screening. So Neil Jordan is in conversation. Well, he said at the time that he was not finished editing. He still had more cuts to make. He didn't cut because of the test screening. He thought the test screening was just taking place too early. But yeah, all we know about what was actually cut from that test screening is that the final Mm. product was 20 minutes shorter. It didn't strike me as particularly gory, actually, did it you? I wonder how much was taken out. I mean, I'm not sure. The visual effects that we get, I think, are extremely specific and extremely inventive and a really restrained use of very early CGI effects on some of the bloodshots, I thought. Yes. I was so impressed with the special effects in this movie, period particularly the crumbling into ash of uh, Claudia and her new companion. Yes. Do you know how they did that? Uh, Why does it look so good? I can tell you, do you really want the story? Do I not? It looks that good. It is It is made from compressed ash. Uh-huh. It is inspired by the victims of the bombing <gasps> Hiroshima. Holy shit. Yeah. So it, it is drawn from, obviously... A calamitously terrible real-life event. Yeah. I don't love that. I I think that that is a disrespectful use. It is disrespectful. a real-life inspiration for the purpose of this film. Taking the film as itself, it is a fantastic special effect. It is absolutely mesmerizing. And and the collapsing, which is digitally augmented, I believe, as well. Very, again, early CGI usage here. But carefully, carefully. Yes, absolutely. And and with a great deal of restraint and purpose, which I think Mm. is true of all of the special effects shots. So, yeah, I don't feel wonderful about the victims of the, the bombing of Japan being used in that way. No. That that iconography and imagery being co-opted in that no. way. But yeah, as a special effects shot denuded of its context, right. I think it does work and is extremely impressive. Okay. The movie opens November 11th, 1994. It's the number one movie that week, making $37 million off of a three-day opening weekend and beating out the other new release of the week, the first Tim Allen Santa Claus movie. <laughs> Whoa. You can remember that okay. far back. Number three at the box office is Stargate. Number Ooh. four is Pulp Fiction. And number five is the Kenneth Branagh Frankenstein. 
Damn, that's a hot week at the movies. It's a very boys week at the movies is what it oh, is. Oh, I don't know. That's a very masculine orientation, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Frankenstein... Frankenstein, to, Frankenstein I think it's, less so. I think it's the double whammy of Stargate and Pulp Fiction that makes it feel quite as as yeah. You, know, you can see a lot of couples going to the theater and then the they split up and the men go over to Stargate, <laughs> and the women go over to see Interview with the Vampire, and like we'll meet back in the middle and discuss. Yeah. Oh, that's a tough one. I don't know <laughs> what I would pick. I mean, right now I would go and watch Interview with the Vampire. I love Stargate. I think Stargate's a fantastic yeah. movie, and I should go back and watch. No, I shouldn't go back and watch the Kenneth Branagh Frankenstein. I don't think anyone liked that at the time. And I, I can't imagine loved that it's aged it. well. Really, and it's really like visually quite stunning in a lot of ways like it might be worth it just to see on the big screen that scene where victor uh carries the body of elizabeth up the stairs and the red cloak is just flowing behind that is such a cool sequence but overall i think the movie is cheesy it's like really maybe too theatrical so yes i think i'm with you i would see interview with the vampire at this moment Ooh, but stargate is cool too this is hard cool this Stargate, I can tell you with absolute certainty, has not aged as well as yeah. Interview with the Vampire. Has. Okay, well then let's go with the Interview in this <laughs> very important oh, what if scenario. No, obviously it would be the Santa Claus. Obviously we would have to go and see <laughs> the Santa Claus, yeah. a Christmas movie for children in which Santa is murdered in the first five minutes of the film. I guess he isn't murdered; he doesn't die. Yes. But still, yeah. Uh-huh. It's so interesting to think of Kenneth Branagh, honestly, and to to remember the scope of his film. He is a filmmaker of such tremendous talent Mm. and absolutely no discipline. No restraint. Yeah. Yeah. In any case, the overall domestic box office for Interview with the Vampire is $105 million. Eventually, the film will take $224 million worldwide and will be the ninth highest grossing film of the year under, I'm going to speed run this so you can just give me like one word responses to the okay. top selling movies of this year. Number one was The Lion King. Number two was sure. Forrest Gump. Number three was True uh, Lies. Ooh. The Mask. Speed. Ugh. The Flintstones. Good. Inexplicably. <laughs> dumb and Dumber. And Awful. brilliantly, right above this film in the box office, Richard Curtis's Four Weddings and a Funeral. <laughs> Wow, 90s. Wow. Smash hit right there. It is, as I said, nominated for the Academy Awards for Art Direction and Original Score, but wins neither losing out to The Madness of King George for Art Direction, which is a sumptuous, gorgeous, gorgeous film. I don't know how well that played in the United States, honestly, but it is is gorgeous. Nigel Hawthorne is who you might know as Malvolio from The Merchant Ivory Twelfth Night. Yes. You remember? Yes. Again, Uh an actor that didn't really cross over into this country very much. But I can see him. Gorgeous gorgeous film wow uh, okay and then of course original score was taken by the lion, lion king, king obviously sure yeah <laughs> i just looked up costume design too and though i can maybe agree that we ought not to have given the oscar to interview with the vampire and looking at this list because nominated for costume design this year were queen Margot, which i do not remember Uh-oh. i'm afraid maverick which has oh, really okay. good costume design yeah i guess but so cheesy okay the aforementioned little women Ah, uh, that was really great. Bullets over Broadway. And the Don't winner know. was The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. <laughs> so, oh, okay. Fair. You can't take Fair. that award All away right. from that can't film. Can't take it away. <laughs> that film is basically nothing but costume yeah. design okay. in glorious excess. So that's all the background that we have, which means that it's time to get into our discussion of the movie itself. Let's talk about this opening shot. Shall we? Let's talk about these opening shots. I've watched fact, it but probably four times. It's stunning. Mm-hmm. Old-fashioned helicopter yeah. shots. There's nothing like it. It was when I realized that's what we were doing that I backed it up and yeah. was like, okay, <laughs> this is when we did this shit with helicopters. And yeah. why is it so much cooler than doing it with drones? I don't understand. Because you can't put a real film camera on a drone. I guess that's why, yeah. right? It just looks 
different. It has a different weight, a different speed, yeah. a different intentionality. And it is just also beautifully framed. This is a camera in the hands of a very skilled That's operator true. working at the instruction of a very skilled DOP because mm-hmm. basically this entire film, I think, looks gorgeous. It does. It does. And I find this soundtrack at this point, whatever this track is, yes. just gorgeous and so arresting and it sets the mood beautifully this opening latin aria yeah just yeah love it stunning and then we transition into this amazing shot we we crane shot down into the street Mm -hmm. in a very traditional maneuver but still like a really nicely composed shot yeah and instead of cutting out of the crane shot we just start tracking down the street so it's stunning we've got all of these extras you know we've got all of the the vivid life of Mm -hmm. the city it it is immediately arresting it is really compelling i'm wondering too how they got the lights in such a way if it's the way that lighting just was because of fluorescence in the mid 90s or if it's a way that we were doing color grading but the way the whole city glows almost green but then like you still have the sodium lights and you've got those beautiful red neons that said port of san francisco it just looks so cool but also so specific to 90s I think you're completely right. right. Yeah, and I think it is probably the combination of that exact neon, that exact, yeah, yeah. color, like film grading almost more mm. than color grading at the time. And yeah, those lights, those cars, right? that ambiance, it's it really captures it beautifully. Mm. I will so say cool. that the film throughout is surprisingly colorful. Yes. But never feels garish, never feels that we go too far. And when we do go too far, we're going too far with a great deal of intentionality, mm. right? The theatrical scenes in Paris toward the end of the film, right. for example, right. are obviously super saturated and, and are hyper stylized. But that works in the context of those moments. Yeah. And yeah, cinematically, an absolute cast iron triumph. I, I don't I know that so we've too. seen another film in this run of movies that has looked this good. No, I don't think so. I mean, Legend. Legend looked really good. Legend does also look very good, yeah. yes. But Legend has an artificiality to it. True. That this film avoids, studiously yeah. avoids by building gigantic sets and right. then just having the camera occupy space. How dare you bring glitter <sighs> on this set? Get out of here with that. Yeah, for sure. And then, you're right, we were introduced to this fantastic anonymous geometrical foreshortened space that's, yeah. it's such an exciting, such a, just, yeah, geometrically such an exciting space to be Absolutely. in. Uh, do you like the fact that Louis is presenting the first part of his monologue with his back turned out on the balcony no, in a it's dumb. very, very dramatic It's so pose? cheesy in the beginning. <laughs> like, I was really worried in the first, like, five to ten minutes. I was like, is this going to be awful? Is everything I remember wrong? Is this just cheesy nonsense? But, it, you know, it comes around. It does, mostly, I think, yeah. We flash back to 1791 in Louisiana, where Louis is spiraling following the death of his wife and Mm -hmm. his daughter. In the middle of being robbed, he is attacked and bitten by an extremely fey Tom Cruise. We haven't talked about the Tom Cruise performance here, really. Uh Does it work? I think ultimately, yes. This sequence, a little bit less. Like I said, I like him most when he's at his most manic. So when he's doing this, like... Uh, socialite rake thing that he's giving here early on, it works for me less. But I do find the ultimate bite that he gives yes. <laughs> Brad Pitt as they then like fly up into, was it a ship? Into, was into it the like masts into of a the ship. Mast yes, of a ship? That was fucking cool, it is. actually. And, so, and, and sexy. Kind of inhabiting this space of like magical realism almost. Like mm. it's unclear whether this is literally happening or not literally happening. Yeah. And it doesn't really matter because it delivers the emotional impact that, you know, that, that, that magical realism delivers. That, that's yeah. what magical realism is for in its sense. Yeah, I completely agree. I don't think he works particularly in that 
super urbane, super sophisticated, right. super socialite kind of way, in part because you need to be sexy to pull that off. And this is still Tom Cruise. It's, and he's, he's just not. Lacking he's, a certain kind of, yeah. When you contrast him with Antonio Banderas at the end of the oh, film. God. <laughs> uh, and yeah, I know it's unfair yeah. to, to rate unfair, anyone but. on sexiness standing next to Antonio Banderas. <laughs> but like, really, that is yeah. a very similar role and a very similar kind of performance. True. And Banderas is doing it effortlessly with much less material. And Cruise is just not giving not giving that flirtation, not giving yeah. that chemistry. It is true, according to reports from the set, that Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt hated each other. Oh, no. And wound up, there's a reason that they never worked again, despite being, you know, two of the biggest actors of the 90s. Really? Yeah, that they did not get along at all. You don't hear that very often. You certainly don't hear it about Brad Pitt, right? About Brad Pitt or Tom Cruise. But I feel like Cruise by, is divisive to audiences. But sure. so far, everything we've read about people who worked with him were like, oh, Generally, sweetest, greatest, very, very popular man. with his co-stars, yes. Brad huh. Pitt did have a terrible time making this film he was very public about it in the aftermath that really? it was awful yeah that he just got super depressed he went to london to shoot this film mostly at night and got like some serious you know seasonal affective seasonal disorder, disorder. Yeah. yeah he got some serious depression too. and really really hated uh hated the process of making the film yeah. so yeah and of I course see that. inhabiting just the emotional space of, of louis through the bulk of the film is not a ton of fun i'm sure no Oh. Also, extremely exacting and exhausting makeup techniques were used throughout oh, the film, yeah. including having Pitt and Cruz hang upside down, literally suspended upside down by their ankles so that the blood would rush to their head so, so that the makeup artists veins? could trace the veins and it would Awful. look natural. And also, that makeup effect in particular looks really bad every it time they use it. does look bad, and they should not. Yeah. yeah. It was not worth it. Just a, a, what a, a pallor would have yeah. been fine. Yes, you know? agreed. Oh. That's so yeah, it's unfortunate that he didn't have a better time it is. making the film, I guess. But yeah. I'm stuck thinking like as an Oklahoma girl from Big Sky Country. I think they say Montana is Big Sky Country, but then they haven't been to Oklahoma. Montana has mountains. <laughs> Listen, what are you saying? Called out, Montana. <laughs> you think your sky's big? <laughs> I'm just saying that it would be very challenging to then be, yeah, in an urban setting that is also almost always gray and cloudy and shooting mostly at night and i believe in it's the his, winter it's his first time overseas too oh, so he yeah. is like no, no, completely no, no, no. in an alien too environment yeah. in darkness for three months yeah. shooting the film. i, yeah, I would also struggle quite a some lot some people there. can thrive on that kind of thing but some people not so much yeah, <laughs> i think i would I also be struggling with that one <laughs> yeah what's perhaps most impressive though is the rapidity with which this film gets to the point it's it's a weird film because there's obviously so much Baroque detail. There are so many little elements and movements and there's so much to the acting, to the performances and to the dialogue and, and also to the way that the film interacts with those elements, mm -hmm. right? The, the film itself, the camera, the movement of the camera is so editorial in certain parts of the film. It's an incredibly rich text that is nonetheless kind of fast. It's kind of superficial. It, it, it doesn't... I was never aware of the clock while I was watching this film. It seemed like it mm. just kept moving forward. Yeah. And it's 12 minutes, 12 minutes from literally the, the Geffen production logo yeah. to Brad Pitt being turned. I mean, No, it wastes no time. I did occasionally feel rushed. Like I often wished it was a miniseries or just wanted to read the book because I could tell that, especially when it came to relationships, because the film and the story really is about relationships ultimately and companionship yeah. or the lack thereof and so loneliness, not and loneliness sense, yeah. so not having the time to really explore the nuances of those relationships particularly between louis and claudia and between louis and armand 
I did want more time, but it it moves yeah. certainly at a very steady pace. Louis Andermond, I can kind of forgive just because the mechanics of the plot require that to move very right. swiftly. But you're right. I think we inform the relationship between Louis and Claudia mm-hmm. right from the beginning, in from fact, the beginning, right? Yeah. right from Lestat's decision to turn Claudia in the first place in order to to provide this familial anchor for Louis so that he will not leave, so that right. he's like protecting his own experience of of this haunted and gothic afterlife, right? Mm-hmm. Even that decision is absolutely informed by the script. We just have characters out loud just explaining say, their yeah. motivation. <laughs> and we just take that. It wouldn't yeah. have hurt to spend a little bit of time in that relationship. I think that by the time we get to Paris, by the time we're getting to the last movement of that relationship, I really love what Dunstan Pitt are doing together. I really love the oh, intimacy absolutely. and the complicated intimacy, right? Because Very. it's not, she is continually asserting all of these different roles and like overlaying them on top of him. He is not claiming them himself. It's mm. a very, all of these relationships, I guess, are yeah. extremely complicated and nuanced and charged with sexuality, with sensuality, mm. with a profound emotional intimacy. Right. And also this kind of discomfort of, of I don't know, navigating who they are to each other and who they are to themselves. Yes, it's it's such a rich text in that sense. Mm. And certain things, I think, for those kinds of nuances can really only be done in literature, I think, like only in a book. It's just so much harder, especially in like a two-hour window, to communicate that kind of nuance and subtlety and complexity in a film. Yeah, I think you're I think you're absolutely right. From there we cut back to the present to give the exposition on how vampires work, mostly so we know what is involved with killing one later for very necessary plot reasons. Sure. Does this work? This kind of exposition scene is often very difficult. It's often very, mm. you know, because it has to be necessarily self-aware. And this one is also necessarily yeah. self-aware, right? We have the stake through the heart. We have the crucifix <laughs> and the coffins. I, I could see the light in the your coffins. eyes. <laughs> yeah. This is the thing. It's like, I, I like that they explain the rules to me. You really have to, because you're right. They vary too much. And yeah. so you have to know, okay, which mythologies are we going with and which ones aren't we? Yeah. What What, what is canon in this yeah, particular exactly. universe? Like yeah, exactly. Like, we just have to figure it out. So let's let's have somebody tell me that's the only way you can do it is have somebody tell me but the coffins though the coffins is particularly so weird why dracula, is this the one that you pick yeah and it's not explained at all there's dracula never doesn't sleep in a coffin because there's something special about coffins dracula sleeps in a coffin because that it is filled with the soil of his homeland that's what he has to rest upon there's like oh. a, a mechanism to it but it's it, in this it's just, no it has to be a it just it has, has to, to be a, be coffin? a coffin and why very silly it doesn't make any sense yeah. very silly yeah from there, we bounce back into the past and we see Louis feeding on his first victim, though Lestat is the one that kills her. We mm. drain a rat in a in a horrifying succession of oh, yeah. visual and practical effects. Right. We begin with a real rat uh-huh. <laughs> and then cut to a very gross animatronic <laughs> from which we drain the blood into a wine glass. Just, Awful. But very intentional and yeah. yeah, very restrained. Again, very restrained, very casual. We keep going back to these little animatronic rats and... They're always upsetting. They're always, yeah. but very quietly so. Mm-hmm. I think they're they're unsettling, perhaps. Oh, can you upsetting. imagine if they'd been CGI? Ugh. I 
can. Mm-hmm. And it's something it's that gives terrible. me pause about the AMC series, honestly. I'm not sure uh, that I don't know. I don't know what the visual style there is. But it must is. be, right? Oh, that's a good I mean, point. You would have seen yeah. so. They're not going to be using animatronics. No. Yeah. Ugh. I just think that people should. I know that I keep on beating this horse, but I'm just so over CGI. And the more I'm going back to these older films, the more I'm like, that's how it's done. You want something to look like it's on fire? Set the fucking thing on fire. Yeah. That's when it looks like it. And then use a computer to augment that. Use sure. a computer to, to develop it. Still, mm-hmm, Like I said, mm-hmm. we've got CGI blood. We've got CGI fire present in this very film. Right. We've got you know certain, the ash effects to a certain extent too, but they are based on real things with with verisimilitude absolutely yeah Yeah. we get this sequence which i think is a controversial sequence for the audience of this film where they go to the very fancy party and then leave the very fancy party with the the elderly dowager yes and her young assistant or whoever that guy is and they pair off and we have well we have the feeding murder uh, feeding on the young man yeah and then we cut back with this very hard and blunt cut uh-huh. to <laughs> Louis just snacking on a poodle. Just just eating a poodle. Yeah. I uh, think this is controversial. Eating the old lady's poodle. With mm. some... Okay, moving on. <laughs> Go ahead. You were saying. <laughs> I think this is controversial mm. with some people because how dare you hurt an animal. Sure. Interesting. Okay. But okay. And with some people because that looks so stupid. It does. <laughs> so dumb. Look dumb. Uh, yeah, it's a weird sequence. Like, I get what we're doing, and we really do just harp on it for a long time, that he won't kill a person or even drain the blood from a person. Well, again, it feels as though we linger on it for a long time, but really, we only spend maybe 10 to 15 minutes developing this part of Louis. The problem, I think, is that it is under-motivated. The problem is that I am not getting... He feels this way right from the jump and doesn't change. He's not really challenged, and I'm not Mm. getting the interiority from Brad Pitt that I want in order to understand the magnitude of these feelings, right? One of the reasons that we go to vampires in literature and in filmmaking is that they are necessarily melodramatic. They they are operatic, right? right? That's why we dress them in opera capes and (laughs) formal attire is because they live in that world. It's Mm. part of that old like aristocratic, the aristocratic declamatory tradition. Mm. But we don't do that here. He is silent and morose and kind of, flat yeah, I think and I hear you Cruz is giving all of the necessary exposition to kind of motivate the mechanics yes. of the plot but I'm not feeling it as much mm-hmm. in this part mm-hmm. of the film at least yeah I wonder if that's just because it works best when it's most equated to sex it could be there is yeah. like I mean obviously there's no actual want in any way for this woman at this time whereas when he in the next sequence in the with next sequence, yes, 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 which is obviously a problematic sequence, but still more believable. Yeah, let's least. talk a little yeah. about this because we frame this with, you know, disquiet among the slave population of the plantation. Mm-hmm. I'm caught on the horns of a dilemma with this one because yeah. on the one hand, I feel that the film is trying to be somewhat respectful toward these people, that it is giving them interiority it's giving them intelligence it's giving right. them the ability to react to these terrible things that are happening and we're clearly giving them a representation of their shared culture correct yeah but, but it still manages to feel exploitative and it's being exploited because it's being exploited literally yeah. by the plot yes in order to give us this like this is you know the popular conception of voodoo traditions voodoo and, and things yeah yeah. Exactly. yeah we didn't need the voodoo doll yeah. so it's kind of it's kind of both right it, it is mm-hmm. both a representation of these people as people, but also an objectification of these people, yes. an othering of these people as another kind of dark, malevolent force? Yes. Uh, I think it was less upsetting to have that than it was to have uh, Yvette 
we're all so worried about you, Master. Why yes, don't you come exactly. visit us anymore? And that's yeah. like, oh, gross. What are we doing? I'm so yeah. sorry. You had to deliver those lines. Yeah. Well, and, and the situating of a slave-owning monster, like a monster in two Actual senses. Actual monster, <laughs> yeah. A slave-owning literal monster. Literal and, As yes. a victim in this, in yeah. this circumstance yeah. is, yeah, really Ooh. difficult. Sure. Yeah. It is at least better than the book in which Louis and Lestat murder all of the slaves <gasps> in order to cover their tracks when they leave the plantation. Oh. At least the... You're all free. Go on, get out of here. I don't even love you anymore. Like, yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, that's slightly better. Progress is a slow arc, but <laughs> here we are. Yeah. I believe, too, that Louis in the TV series is an actor of color. So oh, that's going to offer an entirely offer, different inflection okay. on, on okay. this, too. Yeah. Better. We move then to New Orleans, where mm. Lestat demonstrates a gleeful cruelty and louis still refuses still tormented by his new nature he feeds on rats and ventures eventually into the plague-ridden parts of the city finally finding and feeding on claudia the young girl as she holds on to her very dead mother again we didn't get a lot of time here but i suppose this is meant to be as much an act of compassion as it can be is like okay that this child the- will yeah. almost certainly die or go to an orphanage and wish she was dead, so I might as well end her life, maybe. Well, and, and the virulence of the plague would suggest that she's probably that already she's going probably to die. probably already going yeah. to die. So okay. there yeah. is an implicit justification there, right. but it is wild that we don't verbalize that That we don't explore point. it anyway, especially yeah. since we verbalize so much in this film. So yeah. much, yeah. Mm-hmm. So he is overcome uh, with, with self-loathing and dashes into the sewer. Lestat follows after, revealing that Claudia is still alive, and then he turns her, which mm-hmm. is... Just a phenomenal sequence. Yeah. Dunst is just so good. Her amazing instantaneous vampire glow up too yep. is so good. It's I, such a good special effects sequence. It is a good special effects sequence. And it's just one of those things. Again, I saw this movie too young. Sure. I don't know how. I keep wondering how I managed to see this movie. <laughs> I can't imagine. It must have been on like HBO or something. I just managed to watch it when no one knew that I was watching it. Like yeah, I, yeah. I, I can't imagine. But anyway, yeah, because you would have seen this when you were ten or eleven, presumably by the time that it was probably on. Probably by television? the time it was on yeah. TV, and I saw it maybe a couple years later. It might have. Been. It felt sure. to me that Claudia was basically my age for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, so, somewhere around there, eleven, twelve, maybe. But that, yeah, that glow up and that young woman embodying womanhood, especially for someone who was always being told and this i think that we should not tell children this uh how mature i was for my age yes i think that's one of the reasons i got married when i was still a child i was 19 and that that was one of the reasons people always telling me oh you're so mature for your age such an old soul etc but nonetheless i found that just incredibly compelling for me and her costuming throughout just costuming is spectacular i think ignited so much of my imagination i was wondering Like, I think I discussed this earlier, like where my love for Edwardian costuming came from. I must have seen several things, but this is definitely one of them. The costuming in this I had, in fact, when I was uh, 16, I think, a Jessica McClintock dress in a blue taffeta that had a corseted top (laughs) that must have been straight out of this kind. And and I wore it with uh, a black choker meant to look like Jet, you know, those black plastic chokers that everybody wore, but... Yeah, it was just a huge part of this is something that I find beautiful. Yeah, I think between 
this and Titanic. We can see a lot yeah. of your influences in terms of uh, in terms of your taste in costuming. Yeah. Yes, yes, and my maximalism in and, general. And what's incredible here too is that we get this sudden rapid turn, juxtaposed again by inference with Louis, where Claudia immediately wants to feed. She's immediately engaging yes. with, you know, that that impulse. And we even get the moment when she is feeding from Lestat, where she is taking too much. He yeah. is afraid of her That's a in that moment. Scene. She's so powerful. Yeah. And yeah, just just phenomenal. Yeah. And this, this idea of a child's appetites being so voracious and yeah. so insatiable. And I think it might be interesting to look at the possibility that there's something to be made of the fact that she is a girl child and mm. not a boy child, right? She is our means and mechanism of studying what vampirism does to women. Uh, of, I don't know how we interact with feminine mm. desire. Yeah. I don't know if something is being said, but we don't have, you know, a contrary perspective, yeah. uh, perspective on it. So. Well, I mean, it's one of the most interesting themes of, of the story, I think, that she is just right there on the cusp of adolescence. So once she begins to understand that she will never grow up, as mm -hmm. she says, uh, but she's clearly understanding what sexuality is and wanting it for herself, but also yes. arrested in this space the where... You wonder, like, if her child body can experience sexuality, I suppose, in a way that would be fulfilling for her, even as she is, you know, 200 years old. Yeah, well, it's interesting that we never really engage in any active speculation about the sex lives of vampires in general, right? Is there a That's substantial true. physical difference? You know, I think of the moment between Louis and Armand where mm. they are almost kissing. And it's the right. closest thing that we get to an expression of sexual desire between any two vampires it's it true. seems to that's me that's not feeding yeah so i don't know if you know claudia obviously in the book is representative as tragic and as awful as it is to think about this is somehow representative of anne rice's own daughter and, and yes. the idea of an immortality being thrust upon a child that this unchanging state which mm. is not a virtue for anyone right it's not as right. though either Lestat sure, or Louis, not right? for me yeah we're, we're making that argument perhaps from Lestat right at the beginning but we realize as we move through that this is a curse more than it is a blessing mm -hmm. but for that yeah to be inflicted upon a child is very different yeah Certainly we see, I think, in her taking of the woman that she sees in the window, right? That first moment right. where she realizes, I am never going to be a woman. I'm never going to like realize my feminine potential in this way. The taking of the woman and the concealing of the woman in the bed yes. does seem to be uh, both an explicit desire for possession of adult sexuality, but mm -hmm. also a misunderstanding of what that means, right? right? Like, a, like right. a misappropriation yeah. of that thing. So yeah, again... It's an incredibly complex text, given a yeah. very kind of glossy sheen, mm -hmm. but it lives in both worlds, I think. And and yeah, again, I'm going to watch it. I'm going to read the book. We will have, yeah. maybe we'll do a little uh, follow-up over on the Patreon sometime when we revisit the film, when we've read the book. Yeah. If we have further thoughts, maybe we'll uh, put <laughs> another little supplemental episode. Maybe it'll land on a poll for Stars and Swords. I'd I would to love that. to, actually. Yeah. And I, I am kind of putting together a short list, you know, in the back of my mind for That's spooky right. season, just kind of thinking yeah. about what and I want to cover around looking for female writers too. And obviously, yeah, looking for, yeah, because I think that horror in particular, American horror in yeah. particular, is so dominated by men yeah. and finding the ways that women have subverted and interrogated mm. our assumptions about horror fiction I, I think that's such a rich area. So yeah. yeah, I mean, Stars and Swords, available at starsandswords.com. I still can't quite believe that I got that URL, but there it is. If you're <laughs> interested amazing. in hearing me delve deep into genre fiction, that's the place to get Do. that. Mm -hmm. 
from there, though, from Claudia being turned and, and feasting on the housekeeper and all of this, you know, high drama, things take a turn for the sitcom don't they? Things take a turn for the outright comedic. I don't know. I think I disagree with you on this. I, I find this, like, certainly it gets lighter. There, there's a levity to it. But I don't think that it's played for comedy. I don't know. Claudia's tiny child-sized coffin is a visual joke like i oh, cannot do you think it is i cannot look at that on screen and not find that funny particularly in her little you know pink little girl bedroom it's just yeah it is a deliberate juxtaposition i think that is meant or if not meant to elicit comedy it certainly elicits comedy for me hmm. and then the sequence of these interactions with people the piano teacher in particular the piano teacher's head striking the piano <laughs> in order to provide the the climactic chord for the piece that she is playing yeah. that is a joke that okay. is an outright right. joke right. and every time Tom Cruise comes in I'm like ah, Claudia <laughs> take to camera you know studio audience applause like it feels very 80s sitcom yeah, to me yeah okay that's that's fair you can I see the Olsen twins it. doing exactly this is what I'm saying <laughs> <laughs> I guess I didn't mind it as much but I do see what you're saying it's a fair point yeah I'm not sure that I mind it as much as you know it, it is just a tonal shift it is, for me yeah. that that yeah seems a little out of step with the rest. I think we tonally shift here, and then we tonally shift when we're in the theater in Paris. Otherwise, oh, things are largely consistent through the piece as a whole. Mm-hmm. Time passes, history moves on, modernity comes to New Orleans. We're all Americans now. Is such yeah. a great and interesting line. And this idea, we we revisit this idea in a couple of different ways. But the idea of history itself applying a pressure, applying a a force against. Mm these immortal beings is a really interesting one. I am so taken with what Armand says to Louis later about him being the spirit of the century, about him being the spirit of the new world almost, about him, his presence infusing new life into these, you know, ancient beings that have become somewhat stayed. I find that so interesting, Mm. so fascinating. Does that work for you as a thematic aspect? An underdeveloped thematic aspect, but a thematic aspect It's so underdeveloped that I I don't know how well it works, but I am interested in it, yes. You're right. I I want it, so I'm finding it. (laughs) That is exactly like my particular brand of catnip. That's completely okay. Claudia is feeling trapped by her eternal childhood. This this is where we get the sequence with the woman in the window. A startling bit of nudity, I thought, for this film. Yeah, yeah. two times when we really deploy nudity, it is shocking in very different ways too shocking yeah Mm -hmm. absolutely uh this film was definitely the first time that i saw a nude female body for sure yeah for sure it was yep which is really interesting i think when it comes to like what i think the intent of the nudity was because i would not call this gratuitous in the least like this seems this is almost sensual yes and very specific contrasted with the other naked woman that we get later in the story yeah yes yeah it feels very specific to Claudia. Exactly. We're in her POV. Yeah. We never see how either Louis or Lestat are apprehending this woman. Right. This is Claudia's moment. It's her Except story. Except to say, you know, don't you want her? Yeah. And then yeah. I want to be her, which exactly. is an incredible piece of dialogue and delivered beautifully. It's a stunning scene. Impossibly I think. good. Yeah. yeah. And this leads us, of course, into this first crisis with Claudia, with mm. the discovery of the body in the right. bed. We talked a little about what that symbolizes and represents. Obviously, the discarding of the dolls, too. Yes. The idea that Lestat brings Claudia a doll on the same day every year, the anniversary of her dark rebirth. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. And, rich, and tells us something about Lestat that, honestly, we don't get for the yeah. rest of the piece. Like We don't get really a clear perspective on what he feels about Claudia at all. 
all. Mm -hmm. It's only ever used first as a hook for Louis and then, you know, as a combative relationship, right. which yeah. we're about to get to because we yes. get the sequence where she cuts off her own hair, goes into her room and comes out again with a fresh wig yes. <laughs> all ready to go. It's horrifying. Yeah. It's, it's really dark. And I think she delivers it so beautifully. This sequence where she is screaming, which one of you made me, is so harrowing. And as you can tell, I think Claudia is my favorite character in this yeah. film, at least I'm, I presume yours too. And certainly Kirsten Dunst is everyone's favorite performance from Absolutely. what I've heard. Yeah. yeah, Hands down. This is where she tricks Lestat into feeding from the twin boys that she has so drugged with laudanum. Smart. Devious and, and awful and terrible and yeah, just just wow. The sl the, the slashing of the neck is uh -huh. so graphic. And then the blood coming towards her perfect pink satin shoes and her saying, "Lift me up, Louis." Yes. Oh my God. How do you read that? What what, what do you mean? How do I read it? What is it's so cool? What, what, do you, is, what do you mean? <laughs> what is the motivation for? I'm reading that as her desire to not let his corruptive blood touch her again, since she knows now that oh. Lestat is the one that, that birthed her, that, 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 that gave her this dark gift, that she does not want again to be touched by his blood, that that is the, that, that's Ooh. what's underpinning that for me. But I could also read it, you're right, about, you know, she is still a girl, and yeah. part of that is, you know, her perfect dress and her perfect, yeah. she doesn't you, have you to wear this stuff. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh -huh. So it's, Ah, it's so good. It's so yeah. as awful well to as watch like too. literally not wanting blood on your hands, I guess. Yeah, in a sure, way, like sure. I, I don't want this particular lasting reminder of this deed. Right, yeah. but either way, there is something in the contrast and the clash between that revulsion or fastidiousness, what, what, however Whatever we're supposed to interpret yeah. that, and the act of incredible physical violence that of precipitated it, yeah. and then the act of incredible premeditated cruelty that precipitated that. Yep, what a complicated character incredible so good yeah they book passage uh this is when they take the body out to the swamp of course first right we yes. have to go and dump him in the swamp which is <laughs> with terrible. like actual gators yeah yes, sure uh then they book passage for europe but the mm -hmm. night before they leave lestat returns attempting to kill claudia but louis sets him on fire and hey end of the second act another house catches fire this was so we do it cool, at the end though. of each act this it's was a such a great sequence <laughs> both the fire sequences were great first where uh louis is going through the house with the torch lighting the curtains which yeah. must be practical like yeah. it oh, must yeah. just no, be like absolutely. hella safety guys on set but let's try to get this one take boys and then what a performance because he's just terrific grabbing the decanter and throwing it up against the wall and knocking over all the candelabras it's so extraordinary and then this time we get fiery lestat Climbing and crawling on the Skittering ceiling. Skittering spider-like. I know. It's so cool. Really. So upsetting. Really upsetting. This was the first time that I'd ever considered, you know, because we think about the aristocratic associations mm. with vampires that, that are really fixed with Dracula, but are also present absolutely in the myths prior to that. And even in the folklore that underpin, you know, the literary take on vampires in the 18th century, the association of the aristocracy with creatures that lurk in the night because you had to be wealthy to be awake at night because burning candles was expensive, right? Like uh, this idea that uh -huh. only the privileged could live the night life. Yes, Because sure. poor folks, you know, had their fire or had their candles and then had to go to bed when it was dark because you literally couldn't do anything yeah. else. I think there's maybe an interesting association there. I, I think so too. Writing yeah. has been done on that subject. On sure. Well, and just yeah. the idea of too, of all of these parties that went on until dawn, which I just cannot believe. Yeah. I find that, I mean, even now, like bars let out at 2 a.m., you know, and the people who have a really late night, you know, get home and are asleep by four. But like, 
Carriages at Dawn? <laughs> what? Carriages at Dawn is yeah. just an excellently romantic, you know, bohemian <laughs> phrase. I just Yeah. <laughs> no one had a nine to five then, I guess. Not the aristocracy anyway. Exactly. Exactly. They travel to the Mediterranean in search of other vampires, but find nothing. And by 1870, they have settled in Paris. Louis is eventually approached by Santiago and Armand. The sequence with Santiago. This is uh, very bad. Yeah. This is very I bad, very poor. I think it's though, right? This is Stephen Ray, Stephen Ria. Yeah, I, I'm I don't not know. sure yeah. how to pronounce his surname. He is a constant collaborator with Neil Jordan, which is presumably why oh. he gets this part. And it is... I mean, I will say I don't think the performance is very good, but I also think that the intent, the comedic theatricality of him walk of him first mirroring Louis and then walking on the wall and It's the mirroring that I don't like that I yeah. find weird. But the walking on the wall I think is really cool it's with a the cape. Fantastic effect. It's neat. Yeah. It's a really, it's a really, really great effect. effect. Yeah. But I don't need my vampires to be clowns. Yeah. It was point. very pantomime at first, like yeah. purposefully so, and I Absolutely. don't know why. Yeah. yeah. Unless it's just to introduce the idea of the vampire theater. But then right. it looks so silly when he gets the card. Like, yeah. oh, here, we're all mimes here. Like, what? what? <laughs> so this is the introduction of Armand and our opportunity to go and visit, yes, uh, the the vampire burlesque. Uh-huh. Uh, what do you think of the stage show? What, what? Give me like an emotional response to the stage show superficially. And then talk to me a little about your take on what the stage show is doing, on, on the theatricality of vampirism and on sure. this presentational form. Formative, first of all, I will say. As theater kids ourselves. Uh, yes, <laughs> sure, sure. So so there is certainly something, as you said before, very operatic about this. It's the vampire theater, but you get the sense that the audience are not vampires, right? No, the audience does not know that what is happening on stage is, is real. real. This is right? the, the yes, the masquerade of the masquerade almost, right? This is Yes. Yeah. But then you have some like like the woman who stands up and says, "Take me, Armand." Or Absolutely. it wasn't Armand, but uh I love you so or whatever it is, yeah. which is such a cool moment. So I, th- I think it's Louis who says, "These are vampires pretending to be human beings pretending to be yes, vampires." Yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So it's so strange. And then of course the woman who they pull out obviously not an actress, but the audience no. think that she's an actress. Yes. But like, so all of that is very complicated and strange. And, and that transgressive desire yes. to perform your perversion in public, right? Yes. Like, we're going to do this thing, this this awful, evil thing in front of you all. And you are all going to applaud because you don't think it's real. Yeah. Like that is, that's the trick, right? That's mm. That's getting one over on the audience. So it's so exploitative then and pornographic. And also fascinating. Also, like, it's mm-hmm. it's such a mood. I don't know how, you know what I mean? Like, it, there there's, for all that I don't understand, goth girls, I see this. I'm like, uh, is this what that is? Maybe? Sure. Right. But but it's even the, the subversion of that, right? It, this is kind of mocking because we are situated with the audience, right? We are actually watching human beings pretending to be vampires, pretending to be right, human beings, right. pretending to be vampires. Yeah, well, well, well. So, so yeah. we are at one step even further back than mm-hmm. that. And we're watching this and Antonio Banderas comes down and we might be thinking, hey, pick me, I'll come, I'll come be sacrificed. <laughs> like it's, yeah. it's situating us there and making us culpable in the ironic response to what is happening on stage, mm-hmm. right? It, it's, it feels as though this is like, uh, I don't know, some, some thesis that Neil Jordan's had in his back pocket for forever. I don't honestly remember how much, how fully, how completely this is drawn from the novel. Yeah, I don't know. But it feels as though we are in part at least 
if not condemning the audience of horror fiction, we are at least... We're at least interrogating it in exactly. an interesting way. Yeah. Yes. And, and you and I have talked before personally, although I don't think on a podcast, about uh, the ideas of these forms uh, or of these genres of fiction and filmmaking, which are intended to elicit a physical response in the viewer. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and why, you know, why people call it food porn on TV, because you do <laughs> salivate like you do. Suddenly I am hungry. You yeah, know, yeah. like you have a physical response to things and horror to body horror, especially that makes you Chiefly, know, people yes. cringe. And, and yes, horror, comedy Jump. and pornography are right. the genres that root in the body and in the physical response. Right. Is a comedy successful if you do not have the physical response of laughing? Right. Probably and if you don't laugh not. out loud. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Is horror effective is is a horror film a good horror film if you do not physically in your body feel scared probably right. not yeah. like pornography that doesn't titillate or arouse is bad pornography bad porn. kind everyone of knows definitionally yeah. right mm -hmm. and those are the genres that are situated in the being and in the body yeah, yeah. more than the you know intellectual delights of a romance or right, you know. right. And, and certainly I, I think that you know yes distinguishing that physical response from an emotional response from an intellectual response gives you a pretty mm. thorough kind of taxonomy of genre in an interesting kind of way but yeah, yeah. I'm and sorry. the sequence is doing so many things because it's also making right. you think about it because because you're watching louis think about it yeah and we're being situated as viewers in our response to the girl being exploited to the girl right. being stripped right yes like you in dare stark not dark contrast mm. to the woman that we saw earlier right this woman is being violently exposed and is being turned to the audiences but as is being turned to the audience, is being turned to us as yes, well. Yes, because so we you are get that overhead shot, yes. which is a gorgeous shot when they lay her out and then all of the bodies that are there in, in yeah. their black robes. And this creeping blackness. Yes, oh, just so come and like, all come and surround and feast on her and obscure her body then. But that's this, that's not the audience's view. No, the audience that, wouldn't see that. They yeah, wouldn't no, see no, that. Exactly. Only we get to see that. So no. it's... But even, Very artfully and interestingly Even done. we don't see what actually happens because right. the cloaks conceal her so completely. She is consumed, right? She is, she is right. physically in her body, consumed by this darkness. As well as visually. As yes. well as visually, as well as metaphorically, yeah, right? So it's, yeah. it's operating on so many different levels. It is, yeah, it is Baroque. It is grotesque. It is, grotesque is a good really word. fascinating as, yes. as a... As, yeah, as a piece of theater mm. happening within this film, wherein the film itself creates an additional layer of interpretation right. that I think is so rich, as you can tell. We're fascinated by yeah. it, right? From there, though, I think that things do not work as well for me. This community of vampires that I lives agree. in the they Parisian then, labyrinth no. beneath the theater, the turn that we take to condemn the murder of Lestat and, and in that condemnation to murder... Well, I guess we have to talk about Madeleine first before we get... Yes, to Claudia Madeline. and Madeline's yes, ultimate yes, yes. fate. Mm -hmm. I mean, we talked a little about the woman in the window being taken and possessed mm -hmm. by Claudia in her bed as, as a symbol of something. What, what do you make of Madeline? What do you think that Claudia's desire is here yeah, with Madeline? I think it's very complicated in the same ways that we were talking about Claudia's complex desires for her own adult female form that is her body. Uh, her sexuality, I think there is certainly a queer reading to Claudia as well as to uh, Louis and Armand. Um, and, and that childish, I want this, it is mine, that she still has. And then this woman who Louis asks her, you know, like basically what's in this for you? And a, a child who cannot die. Like yeah. she has lost yeah. a child. So she is clearly not understanding her bargain in any way, but I think particularly yeah. 
though it, it is interesting if we interpret that as a move by Claudia, conscious or unconscious, mm. to secure an eternal mother as well, right? right. She, she is also restoring no. her family, but we are also, because you're right, we're crossing these lines about parental roles and companion roles and right. romantic roles and sexual roles potentially, again, by right. implication, if not explication here. It's, it's yeah, it's, it's an incredibly complicated thing that mm. is done so quickly, that is yes, presented really and resolved. Yeah. yeah, I think so too. I yeah. think it's underbaked. Mm. It's, it's, yeah, potent, but maybe a little underserved because from there we collapse into this extended action piece. Yeah. And the very harrowing taking, capture, you know, uh, abduction of Madeline and Claudia yes. and then their death. And to some extent, too, the, the harrowing imprisonment, the incarceration of Louis in the coffin behind the wall, just to make it doubly effective. Right. But there is, you know, a tension there. In the idea that the punishment for taking the life of a vampire is to be yourself yeah. killed. If we are valuing vampiric life or, or vampiric existence, if, if that is important, which certainly Armand implies that it is, mm. why is this your response? Why yeah. is this the punishment? That and to seems kill two. Counterproductive, yeah. yeah. It, it certainly uh, I does. Mean, yeah, to, to kill two and to remove one from, you know, yeah. presence yeah. within the, the, the community there. It's a little odd. Yeah, yeah. It, I, I don't understand it. Is it at least for you visually impressive? I mean, oh, definitely. The sequence yeah. in the well, of course, and harrowing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and the release from uh, imprisonment by Armand for Louis. Maybe too fast. Yeah. Okay, I can yeah. see that. Yeah, I, I feel like I want that to be, you know, even just a couple of days, but yeah. it, ne it needs to have more time. Even to communicate, you get the sense that like the cement hasn't dried. Right. The day has passed. Right. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it has to have passed because when he bursts into the chamber, it's he nighttime. bursts into the well. Sure. It's nighttime. But you now. don't feel that. It feels like moments. Yeah. It feels like seconds. It feels as he is moving toward Madeline and Claudia that maybe he that believes that he can that he still save them, them. Which of course, right. yeah. yeah. So it's it's a little a little rushed, perhaps. Mm. We get the scene with uh, Louis and Armand, this incredibly intimate. Th this is the point at which the queer subtext, as you said, becomes yes. absolutely queer text. Absolute text, yes. Be my companion. Be with me. We are different. We can have a life together. Mm -hmm. It's gorgeously performed. It's, yeah. it's really intimate and profound. And I think both actors are giving very true and unselfconscious and certainly not in any way, you know, colored by mid-90s queer panic right. and, and latent homophobia. There's nothing about this film that, that speaks to that cultural movement at the time. Mm -hmm. I think it's really gorgeous. Does it does yeah. it work for you too? Yeah, no, it absolutely yeah. does. I wanted more time there. Th this whole second yeah. part of the film just felt so rushed to me and I really wanted to explore those relationships more. Yeah, a lot of what we get from this point on I think feels a little bit like we're ticking boxes and moving yeah. toward the end of the film. Yeah. I wonder how much of those missing 20 minutes I know. we're here I'm so curious. what is effectively the last act or act and a half of it the film. It must be because it really like... When it's just a languorous pace in the beginning. I wouldn't say languorous. An appropriate pace, perhaps, at the beginning. Maybe, maybe more appropriate. You know? Comparatively. It is compared faster to moving than yes. you remember it. As I said, it's 12 minutes from it does. the very it, yeah. opening no, you're, you're shot right. all the way to, right. to Louis being turned. Maybe it's but. just that the things that we are exploring seem less interesting to me. And yet we take so much time with them yes. in the beginning. And then the things I'm most interested by... the. Biggest possible the themes. Biggest and, yeah, possible themes, sure. yes. The most difficult to unpack are just yeah, hurried along. Which I think is true in the sequence with Armand. So, I mean, beginning probably 
in the sequence with Madeline, right? Mm. That's the yes. first big idea yes. that I wish we spent more time with. Then the sequence with Armand. Then Lestat, after Louis returns to New Orleans, he bums around America for a while, yeah. winds up back in New Orleans in 1988, wearing the worst suit in the world. 80s, y'all. Yeah. Which is so, like, like how good is this costuming mm-hmm. that you even picked the exact bad suit that he would definitely <laughs> be wearing? We Yeah, we're reintroduced to Lestat. This is mm. also, like, not an idea that's fully developed. He's just no. been... In that chair for a hundred years? Yeah, wearing the same years? outfit? Yeah. That seems really unusual to me. Yeah, it's and, just and odd. Just, yeah, undercooked more than yeah. anything else. And Because we're also not exploring like the emotional reality of that, of his right. feelings of abandonment, if that is indeed what he is feeling. That, mm-hmm. that regret over Claudia, if indeed that is what he is feeling. I don't know exactly what we're supposed to make not of this, time? except yeah. that, of course, we have to end where we began, because this is a story. And then we don't spend enough time back in the present with Malloy and his desire to be turned himself. Right. His misreading of the text is really smart. Like, like, yeah. like such a smart literary thing to do is to have effectively your, your not your narrator, but your framing device misapprehend the story that you have just been told. Yes. It's so smart. That's so good. It's such a nice turn. Yes. But then we don't live in it. We mm-hmm. certainly don't interrogate it. Instead, we kind of sell it out for this quick jump scare sequence with Brad Pitt with with Louis you know attacking yeah. uh, deliberately trying to frighten Malloy I guess Malloy running down to his very excellent car very cool car and then Lestat showing up out of nowhere it's a bit of a shiny bow ending it's a bit of a wrap yeah, it all up it yeah. is a practical and thematic end to this film mm. that that is underdeveloped in both ways i yeah. think like i don't know <laughs> even to the extent that you're absolutely right we get that gorgeous helicopter shot coming out of the golden yeah. gate bridge and it is dawn yeah and what, what? is your plan what are you stop? what are we yeah <laughs> you just pulled into a parking what, garage what real quick next like, for you what are you okay I don't know. Maybe that car is a convertible and he's just putting the roof up very quickly as he drives down the, the freeway there. I don't know for sure. But it is, yeah, it's underdeveloped. Like, yeah. Even to echo back that idea that he is going to give Malloy the choice that he himself never had, right? Yes. Returning to Which that is not really a choice at all, film. we've learned. Yes. Not, well, I mean, yeah. There you go. Five minutes on that. Give me yeah. five minutes of movie on that. Does Lestat think that it is a choice? Is it really a choice? He must know that it is. Is it the yeah. same choice in tone and in complexity as the choice he gave Louis, as the choice that he mm-hmm. gave Claudia, except he didn't really give, didn't Claudia, give Claudia that Claudia choice, choice, right? No. Mm-hmm. So what is the hypocrisy there? Because there's clearly hypocrisy to some degree. Or, yeah. or if not hypocrisy, then self-delusion of some sort. Right. Like, all of these ideas, they are so rich. They are so good. This is a fine, fine wine. Yeah. And we just pour it out at the yep. end of the movie. <laughs> and if we had slowed down, mm. I mean, maybe if we had slowed down, the movie would lose some of its emotional impact. Maybe yeah. it would be a less effective horror film, right? Yeah. We didn't even talk about the third fire, because remember he he pours out he pours out all yes. of these barrels of what? Oil, what? lamp oil of some sort, perhaps. Oh, is that what you thought? I mean, yeah, I guess. What eighteen seventies Paris? I guess lamp oil that would, would make be appropriate. sense. Yeah. That would make sense. Yeah. Okay, good. Because the the color of it, I was like, okay, maybe a wine. Oh right, like a cognac, like a brandy yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah, it could be. Yeah, but that's what it have to be, like a cognac or a brandy, because yeah. it just wasn't red enough to be wine. Well, and, and, and wine lit, would not be that flammable. Be yeah, so flammable. No. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I like the idea of barrels of, of cognac. Me too. That that's, that's a <laughs> like, good one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But either way. Okay. Sure. But yes, you're mm-hmm. right. Oh, terminally punctuating that part of the story with another giant fire. Another. I just said fire to things when I'm over it. Okay. I, right. Yeah. Does that, I, I don't know. Again, that takes on for so me a comedic aspect. That takes a on bit. for me like a joke. Every time he leaves town, he sets fire to a building. A little like, bit. Well, and also this idea, like while he's, you know, pouring the water over all of the coffins, I'm thinking, God, heavy sleepers, y'all. That would wake me up. You know what I'm saying? 
and uh, severing the person in half with the scythe yeah, is also like, was... a very graphic yeah a and, little bit badass though i didn't mind that oh no certainly yeah. badass and again another fantastic visual effect i really honestly don't know how visual... that one is done. how did they do it we didn't even talk about the transition from real tom cruise to animatronic tom cruise when he is bleeding out after uh, claudia slits his throat wow the very end of that shot is not him it is an animatronic oh my god yeah it's really well done wow cool so, that's the end of the film. Yeah. We get this, yeah, race off into the sun, this, excuse me, race off into the sun, rise, uh, <laughs> with Guns N' Roses blasting on the stereo. So weird. So weird. Yeah. Maybe not that strange that this film didn't turn into a movie franchise uh, after maybe, all. Maybe. Any concluding thoughts or shall we put this on the list? Just that I was here for it. It was a vibe that was cool. Obviously, it doesn't quite hold together and that's a shame, but I was really glad that ultimately the movie did not disappoint me right. because my my hopes were pretty high. And by contrast with many of the films that we've discussed in this series, where it doesn't hold together, it's because we wanted more yeah. and not less. Yeah, <laughs> it's, good point. It's because we wanted these ideas, which are so rich, to mm. be more fully developed rather than, you know, changed or cut wholesale. Yeah. I think, yeah, it, it is it is an interesting film. Overall, where do you stand on the queer politic of this film? Does it read to you primarily as a queer text? Does it read to yes. you functionally as a queer text? Uh, you think that's intended by Jordan, that Jordan is setting out to adapt this into at least a queer relevant text? See, if not then a, I a, don't know because, again, I haven't read the book, so I sure, can't sure, say sure, how sure. much of that is on the page and how much of it is implied, but it was certainly explicit in all of the performances and yeah. in the script, yeah, I think which so I was really grateful for, especially because when people talk about this movie to me recently, no one talks about it as a queer text. Just no. as like... When people talk about it as a queer text, they talk about it as as a, a camp parody. Like, really? oh my God, it's so gay. It's so like subtextual. Oh my God, did they not? It's like the, uh, it's like the volleyball sequence in Top Gun, right? It is a oh, thing yeah, that is yeah, often yeah, cited sure. as weirdly inadvertent queer cinema there is like the volleyball sequence in top gun yeah. there is nothing inadvertent about the yeah. queer reading of this text it is absolutely deliberate mm -hmm. it is it is yeah impossible to ignore um particularly by the time you get into the third act of the film but i mean really right there from the jump right there from, from the jump. as no. soon as we start talking about companionship as soon as we start talking yeah. about you know family the introduction of of claudia into their little domestic yeah. unit and in Louis order and to provide stability yeah. oh my Hello. god yes yeah, yeah exactly it's, yeah, it is an explicitly queer film. I agree. Which is, as far as that goes, a really interesting, and, and not uncompromised, but a really interesting success, right? Because the next step past that is, form. if this is a queer film, what are we to make of queer characters being coded as monsters, being coded as yeah. predatory, being coded as yeah. dangerous? There's, you know... Oh, uh-huh, like, of course. You get all the benefits of existing outside of society. Right. All the quote-unquote... Benefits, not, not yeah. benefits okay. for the yeah. person. No, I mean, uh, as an author, right? Yes, as a, yes. As a creator sure. of, of yes. art. You get the benefits of having your characters live outside of society, of being actually different. Mm -hmm. And that gives you the same feeling of, of exile and of incompatibility with right. mainstream society. But you have to be careful about what you yeah. imply by that, right? Mm -hmm. Particularly when we're dealing mm -hmm. with bloodthirsty eternal monsters yes yes yeah. and especially who yeah turn children exactly yeah. right yeah yeah that's a good point so a complex film of obvious strengths very few i think relative weaknesses if we have to encapsulate the weaknesses obviously we feel slightly differently about brad pitt i think we feel maybe slightly differently about tom cruise mm -hmm. it is worth noting that this is the least tom cruise film oh that yeah we have had since what the outsiders like yeah. This movie is ignoring, not not wielding his 
particular brand of charisma, right? right. This is yeah. not the Tom Cruise movie star trademark patent pending performance that we've become accustomed to. It is something more ambitious. It is something more complex. It's something less successful, I would argue. Yeah, yeah. But that's certainly probably going to have an effect on where we put this on the list of Tom Cruise movies, right? If Iconicity is important, if Iconicity gets Top Gun to number yeah, one on our yeah, list, then yeah, we I kind of have mean. to think. But maybe mm -hmm. this is iconic of Tom Cruise, albeit in a different way, because this sure. is, you know, a different kind of, of inflection from him here mm -hmm. in the, the popular consciousness and the popular imaginarium. Where would you put this on the list? Is it worth looking at The Outsiders as a point of contrast, as a point of comparison? Uh, I... I mean, I put it above The Outsiders. I, But I think that's pretty close because right above that we have Far and Away and then Legend. And I think it's going to live somewhere in that territory. I could see an argument. And this is going to be provocative. Uh -huh. I could see an argument that this could go above Legend. I think that the things yeah. that we like about Legend, yeah. the realization okay. of the fantastical, yes. the metaphor, how we're engaging with identity, and sexuality yeah. and those themes. Yes. I think that pretty incredible production design. Incredible production design, mm -hmm. yes. I think that this film pretty comprehensively exceeds legend in all of those areas, not yeah. by much, but pretty thoroughly, yeah. pretty consistently. At the same time, maybe I just like legend more because I like fairy stories you more like than fantasy. I like vampire sure. stories, mm -hmm. you know? And yeah, that's it, right? There isn't a lot of fairy mm. in this particular vampire story. Vampire stories can be used as fairy right. tales, certainly. I mean, there is but a, this there one is is a not. bit in Claudia, I think. Yeah, yeah, a little bit, yeah. certainly. I, I think I don't Claudia... think that there's a discontinuity no, between Claudia, Claudia and, and especially Dark Lily yeah, that we get at the end not of at Legend, all. right? There's not at this... all. God, that's so crazy that Rain Man would be above these things. I don't know. I keep Every time I'm like, Rain Man? Am I sure? Anyway, uh, yeah. Does your gut feeling tell you that this is a better film than Rain Man? Yes. Okay. Interesting. But to me personally, not to the world at large. I, I do think, as I've said before on this episode, right around this segment of the show, in fact, I do think that you liked Rain Man more when you watched I did. it I than must have. you do now. Yeah, I must have. It's true. Yeah. Either between Far and Away and Legend or... No, let's... Mm, yeah. Between Far and Away and Legend or between Far and or, or between Legend and... Yeah. And directly Rain above Man. or directly below Legend, I think, is exactly yeah. the right point for it. I mean, this has to be I, just I a personal choice. Above. I think they're just very close, barely above, I would say. I think. And even would make a very weird but not incompatible double feature, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think you That's could watch Legend feature. and then interview totally. with the vampire. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think maybe right above. I think you've convinced me. Okay. Yep. That's a surprisingly high it result is. for interview with the vampire going in at number five on our list of every Tom Cruise movie ever. <laughs> what a ridiculous show this is. <laughs> Whose idea was this? Speaking of ridiculous, next mm -hmm. week we're going to have just a very sensible, staid, somewhat conservative, really quite somber movie. Uh, Brian De Palma's very serious spy drama, Mission Impossible. Oh, we're there. That's next week, you guys. Yeah, Fun. The rest of the 90s, the next three movies will close out the 90s for Tom Cruise. Mission cool. Impossible, Jerry Maguire, and Eyes Wide Shut. Awesome. Three Let's go. very different performances. Wow, okay. It's a ton to look forward to. Also, dear listener, we should let you know that the poll is currently available over on the Patreon page for mm -hmm. our next bonus episode. And because we haven't had a chance to do this on a main feed episode just yet, I'm going to run through these options. Yes, do. Inspired by Far and Away, we are offering you the possibility that we might watch James Cameron's Titanic from 1997. Inspired by A Few Good Men, we might watch The American President, written, of course, by Aaron Sorkin and directed by Rob Reiner from 1995. Inspired by The Firm, 
kind of. Kind of. We're offering you the possibility of our thoughts on the first two episodes of The X-Files, uh-huh. <laughs> directed by Chris Carter. Uh, that is Pilot and Deep Throat from 1993. And inspired by interview with the vampire, I'm maybe now wishing that we'd put Meet Joe Black on that list oh, instead. Yeah. Uh-huh. But we are possibly going to talk about Francis Ford Coppola's 1992 Bram Stoker's Dracula. Sure. Which would be a really interesting discussion. And if you would like to choose which of those movies we discuss in the month of February for our bonus episode, you can head on over to the Patreon page at patreon.com slash next word. And in so doing, you will join august, revered, Mm -hmm. immortal, eternal company, such as our fine (laughs) superstar patrons. Yes. Thanks to our superstars, Leslie Skipa, Louise in Dallas, Megan Lauder, Phoebe, Art Kilmer, Kimberly Bear, and Self on a Shelf. Thank you all so much for your support. We couldn't do this show without you. We wouldn't do this show without you, quite frankly. We wouldn't. We'd just be talking over wine again. I would simply refuse to do this (laughs) podcast, if not for you guys. It's so much work. That's going to do it (laughs) for this week. We will be back next week with Mission Impossible. The one we've all been waiting for, kind of. We'll talk about that (laughs) next week. Until then, thanks for listening and take care. We'll see you soon.